Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Just a reminder that it is James 5. I know Mark uh, just said that, but maybe you've never done that before or you're thinking, for crying out loud, I'm in the middle of a row. It'd be terrible to try to walk over other people to get out. Uh, they would be more than happy uh, to let you get out if you've never done that, bef- done this before. It's nothing scary. Uh, matter of fact, it's very healing. And so let me just encourage you at any point during the, the message, uh, if uh, you've been waiting and thinking maybe you should, but I, I don't know. You should. It's a good time. You can, you can go. Um, well, one day, you will die. Your heart will stop beating. Your lungs will stop breathing. Your brain waves will cease. Some doctor in some emergency room somewhere will pronounce you dead and sign your death certificate. Your body will take, be taken to a funeral home where you will be embalmed. Most probably, you will be buried in a casket in a vault six feet under dirt. And you're thinking right now, okay, I'm going to get out of here and go have someone pray for me. So that was part of, that's kind of the goal with that, right? But if you're a believer, when that happens, Scripture says that immediately your spirit will be uh, taken up to heaven in a conscious state to be in God's presence. And, and remember Jesus and the thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise, even though today Jesus' body and the thief's body were in the grave. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But then one day when Jesus returns, this is a wild thing, your body, your physical body will literally be raised from the dead. And 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This will be like a major zombie apocalypse kind of thing because your literal body, your face, your hair, your hands, your limbs, your literal body will be raised and right away we've got issues don't we? we've got some problems here hang on if I'm in a casket in a vault six feet underground or if I'm locked in a mausoleum someplace how am I going to get out or maybe the issue is well you, you know what what about what about what if I'm decayed or or have been cremated or lost at sea and some shark ate me what about that huh or we say you know I don't really like my body I was kind of hoping I could get a different one the Lord messed up the first time around and, and I may want something taller or, or thinner or more hair or something like that or maybe we would say well my body's broken I don't like this body I mean, I got to take all kinds of medications to keep this thing running. And you, you know what? I've got that back thing or the heart thing or that digestive thing or the eye thing. And, and I was just hoping I, my body is broken. And I would say, amen, I understand. Me too. That's why scripture says that when this happens, we're going to get glorified bodies. And this is an amazing thing because on one level, it's going to be you. It's going to be you. On the other level, it's going to be radically different. It's not like you just getting your body back when you were like 23 or in your prime. Oh, no, no, no. No, God can do better than that. This is you getting the body you were supposed to get before the fall. And so we will get these bodies back. But, you know, we got we to, there's some issues with this as well. First of all, we're sophisticated people. 
And this idea of a resurrection of our bodies, it seems, you know, if we're already in the presence of the Lord, it seems at best needless. And, you know, in all honesty, a little bit uh, limiting and kind of grotesque. And you know what? I'm not so sure we really need that, do we? we this is not first church of the country bumpkins. You know, we are beyond that, this idea. Well, you, you know, this is exactly where the church at Corinth was in first century. I mean, the, the, the Jews had in their eschatology that one day there would be a resurrection. But the Greeks were not the Jews. Matter of fact, I mean, they, they are 1,200 miles and a sea and a continent away from Jerusalem, and, and their philosophy is radically different. The body was bad. It was a tomb. It was an anchor. All of their, their pain, all of their limitations were associated with the body. Eternity was getting outside the body and getting released from the body. That's where they were at. And, and even though this church in Corinth was believing, they were struggling with the resurrection. And it's easy sometimes for us, isn't it? The resurrection, oh yeah, yeah, we've got it locked up in a back room of our mind somewhere, and if someone questions us, we can pull it out, oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's different from having it there and having it front and center of your heart, isn't it? Just, just a little bit different. And so Paul is, writes this book, 1 Corinthians, and he's written about all kinds of stuff. He's written about sex, and he's written about supper, and he's written about racism, and he's written about lawsuits, and he's, he's written about supernatural manifestations, and just all kinds of things. But then he comes to the end of the book, and he says, there's one more thing we need to deal with before I let you go. It's pretty substantial. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is penned. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter the Apostle Paul would ever write. Third longest chapter in the New Testament. And it's the only chapter in 1 Corinthians that deals with only one subject. And so Paul is, is, is bringing this up and he says, listen, y'all, we're going to talk about the resurrection because if you would have got this down, I wouldn't have had to write two-thirds of all the other things that I wrote. And so he brings up the idea of this resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to, to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 or maybe pull it up on your phone. Um, 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, we'll start right at the beginning. Paul's going to remind these guys a few things, by the way, of, of the resurrection. First thing he's going to remind them is that the, the gospel pivots on the, the, the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. And so here, here's where he starts off. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That, that word remind, I would remind you. The, the translators are being kind to the Corinthians here. Actually, Paul is saying, I want to introduce you to something maybe you've never heard of before. He's saying this with a bit of, of, of sarcasm because he knows there have been some folk in their Sunday school classes, maybe even from the pulpit, who've been saying, the resurrection... We don't, we don't need to go down that road. That's, that's the stretch. I got it. We, we can still be Christians without that. We can still go down the road without it. He says, he says this is the gospel, though. Now, that gospel, the word gospel, interesting word. Now, stay with me. Stay, we're going to get a little technical for just a second. It's, the Greek word is euangelion, and it's a compound word. And that second part of the word, angelion, is from the word angelos. Maybe you've heard of the word angelos. It's angel. It's messenger. 
And so that's, that's angelos, messenger. The angelion is the message from the messenger. And when you pop that prefix on it, it's a good message. And the, 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 the picture is this. Maybe 499 BC, the Persians are attacking Greece. The Persians, far superior army, far superior navy, larger, and they had their eyes on moving into Eastern Europe, and so they are coming around. They're going to attack Greece. And so the Greeks, they go off. They got to defend their land, right? So they all go off to war. But the people who are staying back at home, they know something. They know that they better keep their eyes on the road because, because one day they will send somebody, a messenger, back. And the messenger will tell them one of two things. He's going to say either, A, we've been defeated or we've won. And if he says we've been defeated, then they know life is all over. The Persians would soon be in their town. And from that point on, the men who are still there alive, they weren't all fighting. They would have their tongues cut out or they would be killed. The women and children would all be assaulted. Everybody would become a slave immediately, living in deprivation and servitude. Life would not be good. If that messenger comes back and says, run. But, but, so they're waiting, they're waiting, and they're waiting. And then one day they see the messenger come running. And a messenger comes into the town square and all the people gathered and the, the moms are holding the hands of their little children wondering what's going to happen. And the messenger says, we won. We won. <laughs> we can imagine. <sighs> I mean, this is the greatest news. This is good news. This is euangelion. It doesn't get better than that. And Paul's saying, I ran. I came to you with a message the euangelion is the best news you can imagine. You don't have to live in servanthood. You, you, you can be free. De deprivation is done. You are free. This is great news. This is the best news. He says, but this news, this, this gospel, well, you accepted it. You're standing in it. It's, it's, it's working in you. It's salvation. He says uh, in verse 3, though, he says, I delivered it to you as of first importance. What I also received, and here he tells you what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The first thing he says here is this is first importance, this gospel. In other words, lots of stuff in being a Christian, right? You got to go to church, and you got to serve once in a while, and then there's tithing thing, and you read the Bible. But Paul says first importance, top thing on the list is gospel, the gospel, and if this thing is not the top on your list, everything else is irrelevant. And you notice what he said as far as what the gospel is? Notice, two things only, really. Jesus died for our sins, and he rose. That's it. Not Jesus died, and he rose, and you better get your act together. Or Jesus died, and he rose, and therefore you better make it start working hard. You know, the messenger doesn't come to town and say, okay, um, you should get your armor on. And uh, maybe you, it's going to be a big war, and uh, they're coming, and I hope you can fight them off. And if maybe you work really, really hard, you just might be able to survive this. That, that is not good news. Good news is somebody already fought it. They fought it for me. And then you, you, you see this. The, the, the gospel, this good news, it's, it's not what I do. You can see this. There is a Christian ethic. 
There is a, a Christian transformation. There is obedience. There are things that I do as a believer, and it's to transform my values and my thinking and my actions. But that is not the gospel. Ten Commandments are not the gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel. The gospel are not, it's not the things Jesus said. It's not the things I do. It's the things that Jesus did specifically in dying for my sin and rising. And, and you notice, you don't earn this gospel, right? He says, I received it. I received it. Now, just, this is, this is, this is pretty key. Look at Romans 10, 9. Think about this for a second. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel pivots on the resurrection. No resurrection, and you know what? No salvation. You can't like, well, I believe he died for me, and that's enough. That's not enough. That's not enough. Now, now what Paul's going to quote here, when he says, I'm going to tell you what I first received that's what I'm, I'm sharing with you. Most scholars, New Testament scholars, secular sources will say that what Paul is going to quote here, three, four, five, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose, that that is an ancient, the most ancient Christian creed. And so think with me for a second, because Paul writes this book in 55 A.D., he plants the church in Corinth somewhere between 45 and 50. He accepts Christ himself in around 34 A.D. Jesus is crucified in like 30, 31 A.D. And so Paul, a couple years after Christ had already ascended, uh, he comes to know Christ and, and he receives this. Somebody shares this with him. He needs to receive it. He doesn't earn it. And that's that Jesus died for my sin and he rose. No, no, we can't, don't, please don't get past this, right? Because the gospel is, again, not something I do. It's not something I earn. It's something I receive. It changes me and it pivots completely on the resurrection. And so Paul's telling this Corinthians who are starting to wonder about the resurrection, listen, don't throw away your salvation so quickly because your salvation, the gospel is dependent on this resurrection. And then he goes on and he says that uh, not only does the gospel pivot on the resurrection, but the witnesses affirm, they confirm the resurrection. And the first witness he's looking at is, is the scripture, right? Jesus died for my sin according to the scripture. Jesus rose according to the scripture. Now, Jesus died 30 uh, AD. Every New Testament scholar, it doesn't matter your denomination, they're, they're not going to challenge that. They recognize the biblical witness as well as the secular witness that that's correct. That Jesus up all night, dehydrated, beaten, whipped, was then nailed to a, a Roman cross. Interesting article, 1986, three gentlemen, William D. Edwards, Wesley Gable, and Floyd E. Hosmer, they wrote an article for the Journal for the, of the American Medical Association, a relatively prestigious medical journal, and they wrote on the death of Jesus and his crucifixion, and this is what they say. They said, as the victim hangs on the cross, his lung cavity collapses so that he can no longer exhale. In order to breathe, he must pull himself up on those nail-pierced hands and push with his feet until he can catch a breath. 
He cannot remain in this position for long, so he has to let himself drop back down. Now, after Jesus died, it says, Scripture says, the soldier pierced his side with a spear. These three gentlemen go on in their article, and they say this, Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Jesus died. It's a medical, clear medical fact, but just to prove it was the fact that he was buried. You don't bury live people. You know, when my father passed, I got the news and I was obviously uh, upset, bothered, but it did not hit me till I got to the funeral home. I think that's a pretty common experience. But when I got to the funeral home and started talking with the people, just this wave of reality, a, a burial, the, the truth of a burial drives home the reality of, of death. It's a final thing. And John 19 lets us know that Jesus was buried. What they did is they, they took 75 pounds of spices, gummy spices. They would wrap his, his body with cloth tightly and then bring his arms down, wrap them again. Then they would cover him with this gummy spice substance and wrap him again in more spices. It's like a, almost like a mummification sort of thing. If, if the crucifixion wouldn't have killed him, the burial would have killed him. And he was, he was buried. But then, according to Scripture... He rose. I mean, maybe Paul's thinking of Psalm 16 or, Psalm, or Isaiah 53. There's many scriptures that, Je that Jesus would suffer and die. And there are multiple, multiple scriptures that talk about his resurrection. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians with this is, this was not us putting a good spin on something. It's not like Jesus, things crashed on us, and so we have to try to make this look good. It's not us taking these lemons of Jesus dying when he shouldn't have and now making lemonade with it. No, no, this was foretold. This is exactly the way it was supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to die, and he was supposed to rise, and he did. The, the scriptures bear witness of this. And then he goes on. He says, not just the scriptures, but there are eyewitnesses to this as well. Verse 5, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. First person on the list is, is Cephas. Now, Cephas, Peter. He would have appeared to Peter sometime between Mary, this is an all-inclusive list, obviously, between Mary and the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, now, Peter, if you think about Peter, Peter, just a couple days earlier, was bragging how if everybody else denies you, Lord, I will never deny you, ever. That's not, not me. And yet, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denied Jesus three times. Little servant girl comes to him and challenges him, and he denies it. And then just like Peter, everything he does, he's going to do big, good or bad, he's going to do it big. He swears an oath claiming God's name, the holy name, that he never even knew Jesus. I mean, this is like an official denunciation. This wasn't just a simple denial, official denunciation. And so Peter heard that Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So he's off someplace with his, with his incredible guilt and now what remorse, and Jesus comes to him. Jesus probably didn't come to Peter first because Peter deserved it most, but probably because Peter needed it most. And I love this, that Jesus doesn't, in, his, in, his, in his resurre- all of his resurrection appearances here, he doesn't come and it's like, ta-da, hey, I raised, ta-da. That's not his deal. He's going to people who are hurting deeply. And so he goes to Peter. And after Peter meets the resurrected Jesus, after Peter embraces resurrection, not as a thing in my head, but a thing in my heart, what's he do? Well, he's radically changed. He goes out in boldness, encouraged, proclaiming the gospel. He becomes the leader of this church. Matter of fact, he would be crucified upside down because he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And of course he would. Because when you embrace the resurrection, it doesn't just change your future. It changes your today. And then he goes on, he says, well, then he also appeared to the twelve. Now, the 12 is a title. It's not just exactly 12. It's a title for the apostles because obviously there aren't 12 anymore because Judas would have taken his life. He's done. Matter of fact, if Paul is referring to that, that first Easter evening, the apostle Thomas isn't even with the group. And Jesus comes to these folk. And, and these men are Jesus' best friends, right? He spent the last several years with them. And... and, and he loved them deeply, and they too pledged their allegiance to him. But what happened? Well, they all abandoned him at his darkest, most needful time. They left him alone to deal with the Sanhedrin and, and, and the, the Romans by himself. And so when he comes to them, they are behind locked doors in an upper room, afraid for their own life, no doubt feeling remorse. And Jesus comes to them. And when Jesus leaves, you know what? That upper room is empty and that, that locked door is swinging on its hinges and those men are all in the streets boldly proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead and they would go and spread the gospel in much of the Mediterranean world and just about all of them would be martyred for one truth. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Paul would then say that Jesus showed himself to 500 at one time. And we're not even sure exactly where that could be. We don't see any other reference in Scripture. Maybe it's at the Great Commission. But then he comes to James. And I, I love him coming to James. Because Jesus had two apostles named James. But this was neither one of them. Jesus had a brother named James. We know Jesus was born of a virgin. But then Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, they had a family. They had four boys. And they had some daughters as well. We don't know how many daughters they had. But the, the next oldest son was James. So Jesus and James separated by maybe a year or two. I don't know. Now, I don't, I'm speculating at this point. I don't know how your family was, but I know my family had several siblings. And the brother that was right next to me, uh, we are pretty close. We spent a lot of time fighting together, but playing together and goofing around together and getting in trouble together and having long talks in the middle of the night together. We became very close. And so was Jesus, were Jesus and James close? Well, I don't know. I would think so. Jesus was probably a pretty good big brother. But when he start, started saying that he was the Messiah, different issue. My brother, really, God? I don't think so. I don't. And so, matter of fact, John 7, the brothers are mocking Jesus. 
And verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. And I love this. This, this 40 days between resurrection and ascension, Jesus has got his list of people he has to talk to. He's going to go talk to his brother, spend a lot of hours with him. And we don't have this listed in Scripture, so we don't know exactly what happened, but I can only imagine. But I do know what happened afterwards, because afterwards, uh, after the, some of the appearances, the apostles are gathering together to, to uh, pray, have a prayer meeting. In Acts one fourteen. it says this, And all these with one accord, it's all these, it's the, the apostles, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. James went and got the other ones and said, hey, you're not going to believe this. It's true. Matter of fact, James would go on to be the very first pastor in the very first church ever, church in Jerusalem. James would, of course, become friends with Paul and all the apostles. He would uh, lead the church. He would write perhaps one of the very first, if not the very first books in the New Testament, the book of James. And he would be martyred. Because he believed Big Brother really was the Messiah, rose from the dead. He saw him. That shouldn't surprise us. Because when you come in to encounter the resurrection, when it's not just in your head, it's in your heart, you know what? It changes everything. Not just your future destination. It changes your today. And then Paul is going to include himself here. In verse 8, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, but though it was not I, but the grace of God within me, last of all. Paul knows the other apostles had been with Jesus for several years before he died. But Paul didn't get his calling until a couple years after Jesus had died untimely born he might mean more with that word untimely it's an interesting word but he recognizes what he just says here but i wasn't worthy to be an apostle because what he did he didn't just didn't just deny jesus or abandon jesus no no he he went on the rampage and started murdering christians and throwing them in jail and trying to destroy and wipe out the church that's where he was at but when he encountered the risen lord he was, he was transformed, right, from a violent, angry, cocky, arrogant uh, person who was just absorbed with self and with prestige and external honor. He was transformed from that to a, a humble builder of the church that he once tried to destroy. Because when you truly encounter the resurrection, it doesn't just change your future, right? It changes your now. And that's what I think he's telling these Corinthians. What has the power to change these people? They were not looking for Jesus to be risen from the dead. They weren't believing it. They weren't expecting it. But what changes them? Something happened here. This, we don't believe the resurrection because it's a nice thing to believe. We believe it because it's true. Because the eyewitnesses, the witness of Scripture tell us this is true. And then Paul's going to go on with one other thing to remind these guys of. And that is that hope requires a resurrection. The, the gospel pivots on it. The witnesses affirm it, but hope requires it. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? What's going on with you guys? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Lee Eklof has written uh, on this text. And so I want to read this for you. It's going to take a minute or two, but be with me. He says it so, so well. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, remains as we last saw him on the cross, humiliated, scorned, dead. The very Godhead is sundered. Jesus may still be seen as the paragon of love and goodness, if you like, but he is not the Lord of all. God's Messiah has not assumed the throne of his father, David. He is not the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. God's son made his assault on sin, Satan, and death, but he did not succeed. So put away your music for the hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of the world has not become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, if Christ has not been raised. He says, no king means no kingdom. God will not bring us home to a beautiful place for our great pathfinder failed to open the way. There will be no heavenly city with great pearl gates or golden streets, no happy reunions, no end to tears, no springs of living water. The world will never be set right. The wicked get away with their wrongdoing. All heaven looks in vain for someone worthy to open the scroll of a better ending and finds no one if Christ has not been raised. If Jesus died but did not rise again, the love of Almighty God has been stymied, unrequited. Perhaps he tried to save us, gave it all he had, put all of his omniscient genius into it, moved time and history. But in the end, it could not be done. We wait on the balcony crying, wherefore art thou? But even the love of God was not mighty enough to reach the likes of us if Christ has not been raised. Now, not only this, but Satan, the dark prince, has won. Eve's greatest son did not, after all, crush his head. It is Satan who holds high the cross. God can condemn him to the lowest hell, but Satan has won the world and stole away the glory of God if Christ has not been raised. Thus, all of the preaching of the Christian gospel has been empty. Our preaching is useless. Whatever hope was held out by Chrysostom or Calvin or Luther, Jonathan Edwards or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham or you in urging the gospel upon a friend, all of it has been empty, useless, promises that will never be delivered if Christ has not been raised from the dead. We tell people all the time what God is like. We get our information from all over the Bible, but we get the most significant proof from the death and resurrection of Christ. But... If God did not raise Jesus from the dead, we have misrepresented him. It was all speculation at best and lies at worst. God is not at all what we said he was. Our theology is not the queen of the sciences, but rather the beggar if God did not raise Christ. For one thing, we are wrong about God and creation. Those Greeks were right who said that matter, nature, bodies, this earth is not worth saving. 
There will be no new heavens and no new earth. Creation will groan on under the burden of food chains and entropy and the survival of the fittest till all is dust and ash. Macbeth's lines were not too pessimistic. Life is but a walking shadow, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing if God did not raise Christ. And we were wrong about this too. God either cannot or will not save dying sinners. Either God does not love us as we so fervently believed, or he is not strong enough to save us. Thinking ourselves children of the Heavenly Father is the pathetic dream of orphans. Perhaps God did love us, but simply could not deal with that most intractable human problem, death. Or maybe he did not really care at all and left us to our own hopeless devices if God did not raise Christ. We were wrong about another thing. God does not affirm that Jesus was his Messiah, nor his son. If God is all-powerful, if nothing is too hard for him, and if Jesus was not raised, it was God who left him in the tomb. As if to say, this is not my problem. Jesus, for all his assurances that he and the Father were one, was sadly mistaken. The mockers at the cross had said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Well, God never came. The cross was not God's plan. Jesus was not the Word made flesh, nor, not the only begotten Son of the Father. We were all wrong about God if God did not raise Christ. What a chilling statement is there in verse 17. You are still in your sins. Even if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even if he is the Son of God sent as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, if there is no re resurrection of the dead, then we are still in our sins. So forget the testimonies in John 3, 16. Even if Jesus started the work of saving sinners on the cross, he is still in the grave, then that debt he came to pay is still unpaid. Justice is still not fulfilled. Jesus' death wasn't enough, and his last words on the cross, it is finished, we're incorrect. It will never be finished if Christ has not been raised. If we are still in our sins, still unredeemed, we cannot help but continue sinning and we cannot be forgiven. We may come before God readily pleading guilty, but there is no mercy to be found. The guilty must be punished and there is no doubt we are guilty. We can say, but Christ died for me. He took my place. God would respond, that may be, but it was not enough. I have not accepted his sacrifice for your sins. He remains in the grave. What's more, in verse 18 it says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Our Christian friends did not awaken from death on the other side to breathe celestial air. They did not awaken to reunions in the face of Christ. There was no well done good and faithful servant, for there was no master alive to greet them. Instead, they found Dante signed, Abandon hope, all ye who enter if Christ has not been raised. And now in this life, we're fooling ourselves. We may be too dumb to know it, but we are to be pitied more than all men. If our hope of resurrection has been taken from us, why all the prayers and perseverance? Why martyrs in the faith? The power that we trusted in to give us help in doing good and living holy lives and becoming like Christ, it was all in our heads. There is no power from God, nothing beyond ourselves. We have no union with Christ. There is no living spirit of God in or among us. We, got, we are not the body of Christ, for Christ is dead. We draw no life from Christ our vine, for he has no life to give. We are not God's temple, for there is no living God in residence within us. We are the widow of Christ, if Christ has not been raised. And then Paul says 
in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. Y'all, that's a good place for an amen. So I'm going to hang on, hang on. I'm going to read this again. And I want you to um, exercise that staunch Presbyterian spirit that is oppressing you this morning and conjure up your Assemblies of God persona, right? And, 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 and answer appropriately when Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, if we were to go to the tomb of the Buddha, if we could find it, his remains would be there. Muhammad died in 634 in Medina. Tens of thousands of Muslims go there every year to visit his tomb, not to celebrate an empty tomb, but to mourn his death. But if you go to Jesus' tomb, you know, there's no other religious leader in the history of the world of whom there are prophecies out that he would rise from the dead. There's no other religious leader in the world who said himself that he would rise from the dead. There's no other religious leader in the world whose followers were weakened and fearful but transformed into bold world changers because the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead, their leader did rise from the dead. Jesus is not like one among many religious leaders. He stands alone. There's no one even close. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians that, that the gospel, the gospel is, is dependent on the resurrection. Don't throw it away too soon. And, and, and the witnesses, scripture and eyewitnesses confirm, validate the resurrection and hopelessness reigns without it. And then he's going to go through the rest of chapter 15. It's a glorious chapter. And continue to unpack the resurrection. And then, last, very last verse. He says to the Corinthians, he'd say to us, Therefore, because of this resurrection... Because the resurrection is not a cold line in a doctrinal statement, it doesn't just change your future, it changes your right now if you embrace it. Because of that, my dearly beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. We forget too easily. Lord, we listen to the world's wisdom around us and we forget that confessing themselves to be wise, they become fools. May we not enter in there. May we believe your word. May we believe the witnesses. May we hold strong to the gospel that we received that was free, that was good news. And God, as we go forth this week, May you remind us of this, that our lives may reflect it accordingly, that you, Lord Jesus, this week would receive the glory, for it's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand for the benediction? Therefore, because of this resurrection, my beloved brothers and sisters, this week, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Have a good day.